Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Glad to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. At least 200 law enforcement agencies around the country have entered into partnerships with Amazon's home surveillance company, Ring. Now, you might be familiar with this. They started with the Ring doorbell. Since that time, it has expanded to a number of various products offered both by Amazon and by other competitors trying to compete in the smart doorbell realm. And uh, frankly, what this is, is a wake up call to what I'm going to coin on this show, the term you cloud apologists. Listen, if you're out there and you're using cloud devices and you like the you're okay with the trade off of your privacy and your data and you understand that some large company is going to take that data and you understand how valuable that data is and they're going to sell it to other companies and other places and they're going to work with law enforcement and basically anybody that's in the establishment is going to have access to the data. If you're okay with that in exchange for the ease of being able to stroll into your nearest big box store and pick up the your your camera and mount it to your front door. If you're okay with that, then you're fine. You're not who I'm talking about. If you're what I would imagine is probably 85 to 95% of the listening audience of this show, the kind of people who are like, listen, if it's on the cloud, it's not for me. If I absolutely have to use the cloud, fine, but I'm certainly not doing it with anything private. I'm definitely not putting home surveillance cameras in my home that are going to be stored on the cloud. If that's you, again, you're not who I'm talking to. But if you are the middle uh, in between those two people and you're the kind of person that constantly says, I care about privacy. I care about user security. I try to do make the best efforts I can, but I also have these cloud devices because they're easy and I'm lazy. If that's you, you're who I want to address tonight. Because clearly, I think the vast majority of, of us, to include myself, did not really understand and did not have a real grasp of the full potential damage that these devices are doing to privacy. Amazon's home security company Ring has enlisted the local police departments around the country to advertise its surveillance cameras in exchange for free Ring products. They're also offering what they're calling the portal that allows police departments to request footage directly from the cameras a secret agreement obtained by motherboard shows. This agreement also requires police to keep the terms of this program strictly confidential. So let's describe or let's talk about something called third party doctrine. And I, I have I'm not sure if I've ever explained it on this program before, but it is absolutely critical to understanding how the legal apparatus of this new thing works. And third party doctrine goes something like this. When you have property, when you have footage, when you have photos, when you have video, when you have property, you are protected if you live inside of the United States by the Fourth Amendment, and the Fourth Amendment protects your right to privacy, that right to privacy cannot legally be challenged or legally be overcome without 
a judge signing a warrant based on probable cause. And that's the way that the laws function in the U.S. If you're not from the U.S., I can't help you. But the way that we do laws here, there is a very strict process, and it requires you to prove to a judge a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of work. Basically, only if there's a really, really good reason do we violate somebody's Fourth Amendment rights. Where does third-party doctrine come in? Third-party doctrine essentially says this. You can voluntarily give up your right to privacy at your own choosing. So you can just decide that you don't want to make the local police department go for a warrant. You will just hand them security footage that you own, that you've taken of your property. And there are plenty of circumstances in which a rational, reasonable, privacy conscious person would engage in this to include myself. We had a break in, not at our house, but around our neighborhood. And the police came and they were doing conducting an investigation. They knocked on the door and they said, hey, we noticed that you have a number of different surveillance cameras outside your house. They probably caught what we were looking for. Could we get footage between this hour and this hour on this particular night? And my answer was, well, of course, of course I would be. I would be happy to help with that. I'd be happy to help to give you that, that footage, right? No problem with that whatsoever. Consider this. Consider you are the manufacturer of a camera system. And consider that you in your user license agreement, have your users agree that you own any of the footage that is stored on your cloud devices and you get to do what you want with that footage that's stored in your cloud devices. Now, that's a fairly rational agreement from the standpoint, from the legalese and protection standpoints of the business, because the business needs to be able to do things like, oh, I don't know, migrate your footage from one server over to another. Uh, perhaps they want to test various beta features out. And so to do so, they want to grab some real footage and, and run it through. There's a cup. There's a lot of, I'm going to go ahead and call them crap reasons, but they exist. Justifications as to why somebody would want access to your data. And if you go and read the EULA of pretty much every cloud provider out there, everything from Dropbox to G Suite to Ring, apparently Nest, all of these companies have something similar in the EULA that says that they own the data that comes out of this. And that is the, that's the real clincher. That's the thing that sinks each and every one of us because we don't pay enough attention to it and we don't understand the full ramifications of that. Many of us believe that when Google says we're going to collect the data, it means it vanishes into some Google data center and some creepy Google employees might be doing with something, but that's about as far as it goes. It exists somewhere in the Google sphere and Google plays around with your data, but who really cares? Google's all the way over there in California and I'm all the way over here in North Dakota. No actual day-to-day -day ramifications are going to occur to me, right? Wrong. That's where third-party doctrine comes in. Third-party doctrine says, if I can give my video footage voluntarily over to police without them needing a warrant, that is to say they can just ask and I could say no because it's my footage and then they would have to get a warrant. If when they ask, I just say yes, and I hand them over my footage, no, no laws being broken, no privacy is being violated, and it's just a willful submission of I'm, you're, you're looking for stuff, I have stuff, I'm going to give you stuff. No warrant is required. Well, that's the way third-party doctrine works. Google can decide to turn over video footage, documents, logs, IP addresses, any information that they want of their own free will over to law enforcement because they're doing it voluntarily. They don't need a warrant for law enforcement. Obviously, if Google said no, law enforcement could go about the process of getting a, a, a warrant and come back 
and come after companies like Google, but they don't. that's not necessary. Google has the opportunity to just turn that data over with no recourse. And you as a user, even though it's your footage, even though it's your data, even though it's your your privacy that is being violated, because, and I don't know why I keep using Google because the story's about Amazon, because you gave Ring permission to store your data in the cloud, and because third-party doctrine says that Ring, once they own that data, can do whatever they want with it, including turning it over to the police, now you understand the legal apparatus as to how somebody without a warrant, a police agency, an investigation agency, can go about the process of getting your information without even your consent. But it gets a lot worse because they're not just making this footage available to police. They're making it very easy and they're trying to establish a routine. They are trying to create an ecosystem of self-surveillance. They want you as the dumb consumer to participate so that Nest and Google and Ring and all of these companies, all these cloud-based companies can collect your data, store that data, sell that data where it's profitable, where it's not profitable, share it with other organizations that they would like to have a, a stronger relationship with. What Ring is trying to do here is get you onto the Ring ecosystems. Quote, dozens of police departments around the country have partnered with Ring, but until now, the exact terms of those partnerships have remained unknown. A signed memorandum of an understanding between Ring and the police departments of Lakeland, Florida, and emails obtained via a public records request show that Ring is using local police as a de facto advertising firm. Police, get this, police are contractually obligated to engage the Lakeland community with outreach efforts on the platform to encourage adoption of their platform and app. Ring has enlisted the police department to reach out to the community and encourage them to utilize ring cameras and adopt their app ecosystem. If that doesn't terrify you, I don't know what should. Your local police department is working with a cloud service provider to implement their product in your house and there is a backdoor deal that they don't want you to know about. If this was not something big, if this was not something bad, if this was not something controversial, if this is not something that users should be concerned about, why the backroom deal? Why would this not just be an open thing? Hey, we make a camera. We want to make neighborhoods safer. If you'd like to participate, here's a coupon code or something or whatever. And police departments are able to obtain a certain amount of these cameras for free. And we'll just hand them out. Nobody would really question. I wouldn't question that. That wouldn't even be a story. They're going to give it a cloud. They're going to give it a cloud camera for free if uh, if police want to investigate a particular neighborhood. And we do that in Grand Forks. I know for a fact we do. I've participated with law enforcement in doing some things like this. Right. When they have a series of crimes or when they have uh, a, a, a crime ridden area that they're trying to address, they have certain tools at their disposal, which they deploy um, to 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 function as an ad hoc They've got burglar alarm systems. I don't know that I've necessarily seen any camera systems, but I would assume that they exist. And so you can they'll come out to a house and they'll rig it with a special burglar alarm that instead of going to a normal monitoring company ties back directly to the police so that the detective in charge can keep can keep tabs on exactly what's happening in that in that situation. So it would not be unreasonable, nor would it be a bad idea for Ring to come in or any other provider that has a camera surveillance or uh, burglar intrusion intruder detection or prevention system 
and say, hey, police are looking for these tools. We will offer it at a discounted or free charge to police departments who have identified a need for it. There's, that would just be an act of good service. This is far more sinister than that, if you ask me. This is Ring actively recruiting police officers to be the PR firm of Ring. From the article, quote, in order to partner with Ring, police departments must assign officers to Ring-specific roles that include a press coordinator, a social media manager, and a community relations coordinator. Get that? Ring specifies that the police department has to go out and hire people specifically to advocate for Ring. Now, never mind all of the technical stuff. Never mind all of the privacy stuff. Let's just talk about dollars and cents. How much does it cost to have not one, not two, but three different positions on staff? Now, I get it. These are probably police that are doubling up on duties. I get it. But point is, how much does it cost to pay? Because you can pay them something extra, I would hope. How much does it cost to pay three people on staff? And for that, in, in exchange, they got like 15 ring cameras, which are like $149 a piece. If you add $10,000 onto the salary of just one person, you, you're so far in one direction, it's not even funny. Police already have access to publicly funded street cameras and invest, for investigation tools that help them track down almost any criminal suspect. But ring cameras are proliferating the private sphere with close to zero oversight. So let me break that down because, again, I have a little bit more insight than the average bear because I've been on the other side of this. I've worked with law enforcement retrieving security footage for various different things. That's one of the, one of the things that I find myself doing over at Alta Speed Technologies. What you... What police do is any of the public cameras, street cameras that are used for and they're put into place and they're sold to the public as devices that are used for monitoring traffic patterns and stoplights. And if there's an accident prone intersection, let's find out what's going on. Those kinds of things. Right. And that is, in fact, what they were purchased for and what their intended purpose is. However, once the state funds uh, these surveillance systems, police can go. There's a process that police can follow to obtain footage from them to investigate crimes. Now, to a certain extent, I think all of us want the police to be able to investigate crimes. Okay, let's be clear about this. This is, uh, the, the, when I talk about Fourth Amendment and privacy, I am not talking about a shroud for illegal activity. That's not what I'm talking about. So to a certain degree, I think when somebody is kidnapped or when somebody is missing, I don't think many of us have a problem with the government going about a process to obtain footage and then using that as an investigative tool. That's not where the problem is. The issue that we have, Amazon is convincing people to self-surveil and they're doing it with this fear-based, uh, threat-based marketing campaign, right? This, one of the emails that were leaked, and th this is a fascinating story to me, and I'm trying to do my best to condense it down into something that fits well into a, into a 50-minute podcast, but the truth is, this story is deep and wide, and I've got not one, but two different articles. I've got one from Vice that's linked in the show notes. You can get over at podcast.asknoahshow.com. There's another one that digs into the exact agreement and the police departments um, that have participated in this agreement. Now, that came from The Intercept. Both of those articles are linked over at asknoahshow.com. But uh, one of the things that you notice is the way that Ring figured this process out or went about the the business of of promoting this to police departments is they came out and basically said we are going to war with neighborhood criminals we are sick of people stealing amazon package packages we're sick of people vandalizing other people's homes and we at ring 
because of our cloud-based stuff, know all of the things that have gone on and know what users have pulled what footage and how valuable this is to police and because we track all that stuff because, hey, guess what? There's money in metrics. And uh, now what we want to do is we want to go straight head to head and we're going to uh, fight these criminals at the tip. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to give out discounted or free ring cameras to police departments and let them promote these. The police departments obviously need something in return. And so what the police departments are getting in return is access to a very special portal. Now, this is called the Law Enforcement Neighborhood Portal. And the Law Enforcement Neighborhood Portal is essentially a web-based interface in which police departments get a username and password and they can log in as soon as they log in it's assigned to their geographical area and they can instantly see where all of the ring cameras in the area are so it shows all of the cameras at at the various addresses now if they want to obtain footage they're able to click on any of the cameras and there is a process for obtaining footage now i was not able to find exactly what that process entails there were a couple of articles that seemed to imply that the process uh, gave contact information for the owner of the camera, and it would be up to the law enforcement officer to contact that individual and get the footage. But I found two other additional articles that talk about or make references to police departments being able to obtain that footage without the knowledge or consent of the owner of the camera. And so that leads me to believe that there is some sort of direct connection into those cameras or into the cloud storage system that allows that footage to be released. I tell you both sides of it because, well, for one, the articles are researched or the articles that I'm referencing are in the show notes. So you can go read it yourself. But the other part is so that I don't misrepresent the situation, regardless of how whether there's a process in which they have to ask users and their personal information is re is revealed for to get a call from law enforcement office officers. To me, that is no better than the law enforcement just having direct access to the camera. It doesn't really matter. First of all, are you going to be the guy that says no? I would be because I have a radio show to defend on privacy and personal privacy and stuff like that. Not that I'd be caught dead with a ring door doorbell to begin with, but I'd be the guy that stands up. But how many people want to have that uncomfortable conversation where you tell your local law enforcement official that, no, you can't have access to uh, footage. And then they go back and tell your, you know, your neighbor, well, we had, you know, Johnson's across the street there had, uh, had a, had a video camera. They don't want to release the footage. So nothing. I mean, it's just, that's all sorts of bad. The Law Enforcement Neighborhood Portal. If this doesn't sound like something dreamt out straight out of Terminator 2. So they have access to this portal and it shows all active ring doorbell cameras. And then they can use this camera to interact with the, the, the doorbell camera and their owners and informally request footage for investigations. Now, the important part here, this is where all three sources that I'm using to, to reference seem to be in agreement. None of this requires a warrant. So for sure, none of this is going through a court process. This is just an informal, hey, we want camera footage. So now we're going to ask uh, for camera footage. And I find that to be terrifying. What these people are looking for is a private surveillance network. And there would be, if you think about it, there would be no public support whatsoever if a company came out or the government came out and said, hey, we're going to install cameras on everybody's houses so we can watch the neighborhood. Nobody would sign off on that. And if you think about how dumb this is, you're going to pay for the camera and they're going to get exactly that. A camera on every door, on every street that they're able to use. If that, I mean, my mind has a difficulty processing this and condensing this down and being able to present this clearly to you because I'm so upset about it. I mean, it's that stupid to me. Cloud-based products mean you have 0% control 
ultimately, at the end of the day, with decisions that are made about your data. That's the important thing to take away from this story. Ring is not the first company to violate people's privacy. Amazon has been doing it for a while with the Alexa. Before that, we had Google doing it with Android. Before that, we, I mean, it's just, there are, there are, there's never, there's not an end to companies that are willing to exploit your data for profit. So I think that's a battle not worth fighting. It's not any one specific company I'm upset with. It's the fact that we still don't acknowledge that if you're using cloud-based devices and cloud-connected devices, ultimately, you don't have any control over that device or over the data that's on that device. Now, it's bad enough when we're talking about Nest thermostats that have hidden microphones in them. That's bad. That's uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, most of our thermostats are sitting in the middle of the house and most of the spicy conversation happens not in the in the center of the house. So to a certain degree, I can understand how people can dismiss parts of that. When it comes to Android cell phones, I mean, I get it. I'm I live in a practical world. I understand it's not practical to be worried about the privacy of your phone 24-7, 365. You just at some point have to accept the convenience of having a smartphone like the rest of the developed world is more important than making sure that everything you say or all of your location data is not obtained by any third company. I I can it's I'm not comfortable with it, but I can get there. I draw a hard freaking line in the sand when we start talking about mounting cameras either inside or outside of my house, that content being stored on a cloud server and then a law enforcement agency being given access to that data without my consent and possibly without my knowledge. Again, Fourth Amendment right, not a shroud for illegal activity, but your home should be a refuge from all threats. Your home should be your castle. Privacy is the one thing that nobody should be able to take away from you when it comes to your home. And these people, they're motivated by a very noble thing. I don't believe that the Lakeland Police Department is filled with weirdos. I don't believe they're filled with voyeurs. I don't believe the people that work at Ring are bad human beings and don't want good things. I don't believe the people that buy Ring doorbells and put them on their house are bad people or foolish people. Maybe a little foolish, but not bad people. But here's the thing. Those people went out and purchased that $149 doorbell because they thought they're making their neighborhood safer. They thought they're protecting their home from a perceived threat. Amazon is pushing this as a way to combat perceived threats. The police department is supporting Amazon and Ring's efforts to get people to install these cameras because they believe they're thwarting a perceived threat. And you know what the reality is? The reality is you're creating a perceived threat. The threat is right there in that little box because today it's something you're using that if somebody breaks into your house that you're going to catch the quote unquote criminal. But here's the sad reality. Crime is everybody commits crime. Everybody makes a thousand little mistakes a day that could be prosecuted if you had a, a DA or a, uh, you know, a, a district attorney following you around trying to decide what laws you broke. Right. All of us do stupid things from time to time. The fact that these that you now have a surveillance device in your home and it's going to continue to 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 record everything that you do and that information is stored out of your control, out of your sight, out of your mind, out of your knowledge. And at any point in time, the police can use that to come make your life come crashing down if they so choose to target you that week. That's a big, big problem. And you know what's funny? This this program is not that old. This is just coming to light. And obviously, there's a lot of news being generated about it and a lot of discussion being had. And you know what a lot of people are saying? 
A lot of people are saying this is already being being proven to be a problem. We already have individual cases of racial discrimination where people have come out and said they've reported in this neighborhood app that there's a there's a problem. There's something that's suspect. There's something going on. This is already happening. People's rights are already being violated. And I get that there's a legal loophole. That's why I explained that at the beginning of the hour. Now for the rest of the hour, I'm going to talk about people's <laughs> rights being violated. People's rights are being violated and they don't really have a good out. And the worst part is nobody cares. Nobody cares. I was walking up and down the hallways of the radio station this morning before I did a show over there. And I was discussing this with a few people. Nobody could care less that Ring has a doorbell that transmits and records all of your information in the cloud and, and police have access to it. So nothing's really going to change. Unless we do something, unless we get out there and begin to continue to, to, to perpetuate this discussion, have this discussion with other people, say, hey, please think twice before you put one of these stupid things. You're not just making it bad for bad guys. You're making it bad for everyone. Because guess what? You may have decided, you may have consented to putting your images and your entire family's life recorded in HD video onto some cloud server that everybody that wants access can get access, basically. I didn't consent to that. And so when you put those things in my neighborhood, by, by proximity, I am forced to be, to, to be subject to that, right? If my neighbor across the street buys one of these stupid things, every time I leave or return to my house, that information theoretically is being stored somewhere. And that makes me uncomfortable. And I spent way longer on that story than I had intended to. But it's just, it's, it's, this is, the, these are the kind of things that drive me nuts because I am a person that can't stand it when there are, when, when there's, there's something being presented in the news and you look at it and the truth is so far different than what is being presented. And everybody, to include very technically smart people that are, are very well informed and understand a lot of this stuff, they still perpetuate that there is, or they still, I guess, succumb to this idea that the cloud is convenient enough that the privacy implications do not yet trump the convenience of buying these cloud-connected devices. And so every time a story like this comes out, I feel it necessary to spend some time on it and dig in and say, here's what's going on, here's why it's a terrible thing, and here's what we have to do to fix it. Again, open phones this hour, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Also, I'd invite you to join our interactive chat room. You can do that by going to irc.freenode.net, and it's pound ask Noah show. Now, what's interesting about our IRC chat room is I have tried every communication platform under the sun in an effort to try to connect with other Linux users. I have tried, uh, obviously, our Telegram group at telegram.asknoahshow.com. Obviously, that is a thriving community. Um, we are on Mastodon. Obviously, we're on all of the various social networks. Um, we've tried Matrix. I mean, you name it, we've tried it as a chat platform. And you know what's interesting? People keep coming back to IRC. And so I made an offhanded comment in the IRC room that, man, there's a lot of people that stick around here during the week. Well, that was apparently either the right or the wrong thing to do, depending on how you look at it, because it just kind of blew up. And now we have like a group of regulars that kind of hang out in the chat all week. And so I was actually down in my lab uh, where I work all day. I threw up a, uh, a an IRC um, Quasso client and I threw it up on a dedicated monitor. And so now I just kind of hang out in the chat room. So if you're not in the chat room, I invite you to do so. Ask, pound Ask Noah Show on Freenode. Um, 
it's a great way to check it out. And then we have all sorts of different ways you can access it. If you don't want to go about the business of setting up your own IRC client, you can go over to altaspeed.com and click on the Ask Noah page there. We have an IRC client for you. There's one embedded over asknoahshow.com. You can connect that way. You can go to chat.asknoahshow.com, which offers a persistent uh, chat client if you want to create a username and password and, and be able to... Um, it continually, you know, revisit without having to, to miss the backlog. So all different ways you can do that. But uh, chat room is uh, incredibly cool. And uh, we're very proud of our chat room. Valve has released their new VR headset. And this is super cool. $999 makes this one of the most expensive headsets available. However, I would articulate that this is right in line with where the HTC Vive was when it was released. And let me tell you something about the HTC Vive. I remember having tried the original Oculus Rift. And it was, I mean, it was cool. It was a very novel experience. You put it on, it's pretty cool. You're like, huh, this is kind of neat. I can see why people like this. I'm not going to pay however much the Oculus Rift was at that time. But I'm not going to pay for that. But I, that's cool. I can understand why people like it. It's a very novel experience. Well, when they came out with the HTC Vive and I had an opportunity to give that a shot and demo it, it was a game changer because when you put the HTC Vive on, you are teleported to an entirely different dimension. You exist inside of an entirely different world and it feels real. It feels like you're in that environment. And I remember the very first time I was in some sort of demo program or some sort of demo disc or whatever. And uh, it, there was a movie theater and you could walk into the movie theater and uh, you could call up Netflix and Netflix would open up on this big, big, gigantic projector and you could play movies and watch them and I, i'm sitting there watching netflix in this marvelous movie theater and i'm like i wonder if they have a living room set, you know set up or set or whatever you call it uh, sure enough they did and i started to think to myself man i could just live in vr like anything i can imagine can exist in this world and it can just appear in front of me and i can participate and it feels real at the end of the day we just go through life and life experiences for the purpose of implanting memories into our brain right how different is that if we can simulate those and let me tell you the htc vive does that very well well my understanding is having not tried the new valve vr headset yet it rivals the htc vive best yet it officially runs on linux linux is an officially supported operating system for the valve vr headset and that is huge for a number of reasons first of all htc got their start or so i'm told because they agreed to work with Valve, or more importantly, Valve agreed to work with them. And so as Valve develops their own VR headset, a couple of things can be guaranteed. First of all, Valve has a vested interest in Linux, and they continue to prove that. They also have a vested, um, I don't want to say power hole, but certainly their opinion on decisions in Linux clearly matters, and we saw that the past few weeks. So that's pretty cool. But then to cinch it, when game developers come to Valve and want to be on the Valve store, it's only going to make sense for them want to support the official VR headset released, sold, and distributed by Valve. And so that means that if they want that, that headset to work, they're probably going to push for Linux support if you want it to work on the official Steam OS. Uh, so this could not be better for us as Linux users. Uh, now, the best games that are on Linux that run on this headset so far are Race the Sun, X-Plane, and Payday 2. There's a bunch of other ones, of course, but of the games that run on Linux, me not being a gamer, those are some of the games that I am excited to play. Race the Sun in particular, because I have been addicted to that game since the day it was released. Absolutely fantastic game. It is a crazy way to kill hours upon hours of time, and it doesn't require a very powerful computer to run it. I remember when Race the Sun came out, and at the time I was using a ThinkPad T420, 
and it was not a terribly powerful computer at the time. But, you know, for the most part, and a lot of you know this about me, I don't buy a lot of computers new. I usually buy them used off of eBay because they depreciate in value and I just, I'm cheap. So uh, I have this ThinkPad T420, which for the most part doesn't play games, right? I tried to run Counter-Strike Source, didn't work at all. And um, Race the Sun comes out. And so I install it on my ThinkPad T420 and with the Intel graphics and my low resolution screen, works flawlessly, works perfectly. And so it's literally become like the first game I install anytime I get a new PC. The idea of being able to play that game in VR is mind-blowing to me because the interface lends itself so well to, to creating a cool VR experience. Also, explain. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm in between. I have flown commercial flight simulators. I've flown flight simulators that are certified to give you a type rating inside of a jet. And so if you are, you know, if you get a, you know, if you, instead of like flying an actual 737, you can go fly this particular simulator and it counts for the same as far as the FAA goes, as far as uh, flight time and, and being certified to be able to actually fly the airplane with people on it. So I have high standards when it comes to flight simulators, to say the least. Uh, but it's definitely something I'd be interested in playing with because flight simulate, simulating flight and simulating flying is one of the coolest experiences a human being can have, right? And then, of course, Payday 2. If you're not familiar with Payday 2, I have Payday 2 from the Nintendo Switch. It is an absolutely fantastic game, super fun gameplay, very entertaining, very adult-oriented. Not something you'd want to play around the kids. Um, but it's definitely a very intriguing game. Again, not quite sure how that's going to play out in VR, but I, uh, I, I'm excited to see. One of the games I am intensely watching and hoping that it eventually comes to Linux because I truly believe it is the best VR game out there and, and interestingly, the only game that I have any real screen time uh, playing with. And of course, my mind is blanking on the name, but it's, it's a game where essentially <clears throat> it's a lot like uh, Guitar Hero where you play the guitar and it has colored lines and you you push the colored buttons that correspond to the lines that are coming at you but instead of playing you you slice with these VR swords and so these you know various objects come at you and you slice the appropriate color with the appropriate with the corresponding colored sword very very addictive very very cool game very fun thing to spend some time on but i've had an opportunity to play that and uh, like i said VR on linux absolutely coolest thing ever and to add to the sweetness of it the requirements for this are not that bad nvidia geforce gtx 970 plus or amd rx 480 plus and a dual core or better cpu now my friend ryan from destination linux and dos geeks tells me that uh those specs are you're not going to have flawless game pl play on every single game but you'll muddle through so take that for what it's worth Absolutely awesome that Valve is releasing a headset. Absolutely awesome that it is flying off the shelves, which is the actual uh, point of the article. I, I, I'm more excited about the fact that we have a VR headset that is really geared towards Linux. But they um, they have flown off the shelves. They can't keep them in stock. So many people are interested in, the, in them. And this is at $999, one of the more expensive headsets on the market at this point. Because I think that, I believe the HTC Vive is $500 some dollars or $600 some dollars. And that includes the HTC Vive along with all of the room sensors. Now, they do have another package. I don't know exactly what the difference is. I believe it's just you don't get the room sensors, but for $749, you can get some sort of an entry-level introduction package to the Valve VR headset, and it will give you something. I just don't know exactly what the difference between the 749 and the 991 was. It wasn't very clear from their site. If VR on Linux isn't cool enough and doesn't get you excited enough, it gets even better because guess what? The Linux desktop 
That is to say, GNOME and KDE is going to be optimized for VR. Man, this is so cool. It's such a cool week for VR stuff. That I can't even believe it. The pro project is called XR Desktop. You can learn more about XR Desktop in the XR Desktop release podcasts. Quote, we want to expand the current set of actions to include with Windows. Our wish list includes gesture-based finger tracking, pinch zoom with two controllers, scrolling by grabbing the window content as seen in the touchscreen interfaces. So to break down at a technical level what these guys are doing, they are using... They're combining a couple different projects or a couple different components uh, to create v a VR experience in the GNOME and KDE desktop. The first is Gulkin, a glib wrapper for Vulkan. It provides classes for handling Vulkan instances, devices, shaders, initializes textures, and CPU memory from DMA buffers. They're using GXR, which is an XR API abstraction. Currently, it only supports OpenVR, but OpenXR support will be added soon. Lib Input Synth, which is a library for synthesizing desktop input, like moving and clicking a mouse, as well as keyboard key presses. And XR Desktop, which is a 3D UI window management library with several widgets containing overlays and scene render backends. It implements features required for 3D window management, including a 3D pointer, intersection testing, and field of view attached objects. This, to me, opens up VR to an entirely new audience. And Chatroom seems to agree. Kabavik in the chat room says, this is super cool. I did not know that. Safe Spaces was the only VRDE I've heard of so far. And I believe we actually covered Safe Spaces or at least briefly mentioned them on, on the program once before. But my understanding is that uh, XR Desktop is a much more um, fleshed out version of VR on the Linux desktop. It, again, that's my understanding. I, I could be wrong about that. But to me, if, what is for sure is this opens VR up to a whole new audience. Um, Again, I've tried VR. I think it's very novel. I think it's very cool. I got very addicted for the short time that I had access to an HTC Vive that was already set up. But frankly, and to be honest with you, I have been thinking or discussing or planning on building a VR workstation for some time. And the reason that it's never really come to fruition is because, well, frankly, you're going to spend $1,500 on a desktop. Then you're going to have to almost dedicate a room to it. You don't have to, but basically it's better if you do dedicate a, a space to the VR system. You have to mount these devices on your walls, and I am, because I do cable and cable management for a living, I'm very particular about what cables are exposed and where. So for me, that probably means drilling into the walls or drilling into the ceiling and, and routing or pulling cable. Uh, and then once all of that is done, I get the pleasure of wasting a few hours a day playing a game. Uh, and as I've said numerous times on this program, anybody that knows me knows it to be true. I'm just not much of a gamer. Well... With XR Desktop, that kind of changes things a little bit because now I could now you can theoretically use VR to get serious work done. I may not be interested in sitting wasting time playing games, but I'm definitely interested in seeing if there is a more efficient way to do show prep for the Ask Noah show. If there's more, if there's a more efficient way to look at network graphs and 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 server logs and stuff like that, how great would that be? If instead of grepping a log, I could grab with my hands, pull logs from one screen to the other and move things over, move terminal windows over, you know, annotate or dictate commands and have them translated into text. Like the the future possibilities are almost too. It's just so exciting to me. The opportunity to use this inside of industry, massive, right? We can use this for medical research. We can use this for science. We can use this for education and learning the ability to actually put a child in the actual environment you're talking about 
You want to teach them about dinosaurs. Let them look around and see what it's like to exist in dinosaurs, you know, when dinosaurs roam the earth. I mean, it's just, it's a very cool concept. And the, the possibilities are so endless. And the timing of this could not be better for my imagination because I recently had the opportunity to view uh, the latest Disney movie, Lion King. And if there's nothing else, well, so first of all, Disney's awesome because they use Linux and they make sure to point that out at virtually every large Linux conference that they're at. But more importantly, Disney has perfected the the process of taking a made-up world that has been designed in somebody's head, brought to pseudo-life through animation, through drawings, and bring it to actual life so you can see what that world would look like in real life. Now, if we can do that for a Hollywood video, imagine what we could do at a much smaller scale if we had the advent of VR, great photorealistic computer-generated images, and a need to convey information to a hungry young child who wants to learn something or even an older, you know, experienced student like somebody that's in college. The ability for VR, I mean, it just, it goes on and on and on. And the, the, the it, it, to me, what it really is, VR is a force multiplier. Because when you have a traditional input device like a keyboard or a mouse or even a joystick or hand controller or something like that, it allows you to have a certain... Um, interaction with the PC that that everybody else has well when you start to when you and, and you can enjoy that right and VR up until now has been that it's another way to interface with the PC it's another way to enjoy the game it's a way to be more in depth with the game but what VR is becoming as we start to use it for desktop management is it becomes a force multiplier it becomes a tool to inspire new tools right imagine the ability of VR photo editing being able to look at something and grab that picture and drag it make it really, really big so it fills your entire field of view. Instead of just bringing the, the, the screen closer to your face and then you start to see pixelization, stuff like that. Imagine the possibilities of being able to look at a given photograph in a, in a variety of different environments if you start to incorporate green screens. Imagine what you could do if you started doing VR photo or video editing. Imagine a VR podcast. If we could all come together in the same room, in a virtual mumble style room and all hang out. It's a multi force multiplier. It's a tool that inspires people to make new tools. It's a tool that inspires people to do different things. And that's what's so incredibly powerful and cool about not, not just VR, but VR coming to Linux as a way of desktop management. So their roadmap as of today includes the following. An improved user interface when running overlays over foreign scene applications. Improve the scene app performance. Improve Wayland support. Improve 2D widget toolkit support. 3D widget library and extend the intersection possibilities. So overall, a, a really awesome uh, project, a really a very, very cool idea and very cool execution and a massive, massive thank you to all the hard work that must have went into a project like this and to all the developers. We will be following your project extraordinarily closely. Uh, if anybody from the project is listening, we have reached out to you guys to see if we can have you on the program because we would love to interview you and pick your brain and thank you in person for the amazing work that you're doing. Very, very cool project, and uh, I can't wait to see where this goes. Definitely will be partaking and playing with this. Now, Manjaro announced this week that they will be shipping a closed-source version of FreeOffice instead of LeverOffice by default, and the whole Internet has lost their minds, as they typically do. Now, here's the thing. Shipping with FreeOffice instead of LibreOffice for flagship editions only of Manjaro. So that's the, that's, the, that's the first part. Second of all, 
The only thing that FreeOffice really doesn't have is its closed source. Now, I'm not saying that's not a big deal, and I'm not saying that there isn't a uh, argument to be made that LibreOffice is a better piece of software, but let's back up for a second. First of all, FreeOffice is kind of a cool application if you've not played with it before. It allows you to both have a traditional layout as well as a ribbon layout. It has, they focus on Microsoft Office integration, something that is painstakingly frustrating to a lot of LibreOffice users. If you look at the majority of feedback that comes from LibreOffice users, a lot of them will tell you that the reason that they either bailed on LibreOffice entirely or had a struggle to maintain using LibreOffice was because they... Uh, is because they, uh, oh, well, I just noticed our uh, phone system failure. Uh, the, the reason that they struggle with that, the reason that they struggle with LibreOffice is because of the compatibility with Microsoft Office. And that can be extraordinarily frustrating to a lot of users. And so FreeOffice really kind of tackles that. And so so for that, I, I think that there is something to be said about, you know, we, we need to be, we need to call a we need to call a spade a spade. If something's really bad, fine. But in this particular case, free office is not that bad of a choice, right? It's not that terrible. Uh, that said, they are shipping a closed piece of software in place of a uh, an open source piece of software, arguably a better piece of Office Suite software. So I guess that's a discussion worth having. But here is my answer to you: If you are the kind of community member that is upset that Manjaro would ship a closed piece of proprietary software instead of a free and open source piece of software, look at the reason why. And the reason that they are doing this is a funding problem. They need to be able to fund the continued development of Manjaro. And so what this tells me is when they form partnerships with this, much like Mozilla formed a partnership with Yahoo and people lost their mind over that, and much like Mozilla formed partnerships with other um, organizations that they would put into the opening page, much the reason that those things happen, that's why open source projects look for other funding models is because we as open source users are not stepping up to the plate. So if you're upset with this decision to ship FreeOffice instead of LibreOffice with Manjaro, open your checkbook up and help Manjaro continue their development costs. And then and only then do you really have a right to complain about it. But, they, but we need to allow, we need, need to allow open source projects to find ways to self-fund themselves if people aren't willing to contribute. And th the moment that people are contributing back, then those companies become beholden to their supporters and they will have to make decisions that please their supporters. And that will include things like open source software, if that's what's actually important to their supporters. My guess is the vast majority that are paying for premium versions of Linux distros are not as worried about the software license that's underneath as they are the compatibility day-to-day -day work. And if, if I'm a Linux strategist and I'm sitting down and trying to figure out how to, to, to perpetuate my plan to get the entire world on Linux, it starts with, let's follow the Lotus 1.2.3 model. Lotus 1.2.3 got taken over by Microsoft because Microsoft was smart enough to support backwards compatibility for Lotus 1.2.3 documents before uh, they started pushing their own proprietary format, right? So that's the first step is we have to have an office suite that can function perfectly with Microsoft Office. And then we can go forward and say, well, now we should look be worried about the software license. So if you care, donate to Manjaro. Uh, either way, I support their decision to uh, to make this change. I think it's a good idea. Feedback comes to live at asknoahshow.com. Uh, we are 
making it a priority to make sure that we take uh, a piece of uh, a couple pieces of feedback every episode. So we invite you to write back into the show. You can give us critiques on things that you like, things that you don't like, or questions. Um, this email comes from Steve. Steve writes in and says, you have mentioned many times the idea of running Windows as a virtual machine and letting users access it via remote desktop. I am doing just that, but the performance is absolutely miserable. I have two KVM hosts. They aren't quite supercomputers, but they're not too bad. They have dual core, quad core Xeons running at three gigahertz. They have 32 gigabytes of RAM and there is unused RAM available. So in other words, there's no swap space being used here. The VM images are accessed via an NFS share over FreeNAS over a gigabit ethernet. The guest has eight gigabytes of RAM and four CPU cores allocated. It is an install of Windows 10 Pro. There are also three other Linux guests on the host, but they are essentially idle. As I say, the Windows performance is terrible. It can take minutes for something as simple as a web browser to open and load a website via a remote desktop connection. I don't notice any problems with any of the Linux guests. Do I not have enough resources allocated to the guest? Are there some tuning tweaks that I should look into? Any help would be graciously appreciated. Thanks, Steve. Well, I want to give you some encouraging piece of uh, some encouraging news, Steve. Your uh, your situation is abnormal. Uh, none of my clients would go for this if they sat down and it was. It doesn't even have to be much slower. It just has to be noticeably slower. If it's noticeably slower than bare metal, they're going to say, "Why not just use bare metal?" It pretty much the performance has to be not exactly the same, but it has to be pretty darn close to get people to sign off on it. Obviously, there are a number of different things to, to go about troubleshooting. So, the, uh, I mean, let's start at the beginning. The very first thing I would do, move the disk image from your your VM uh, guest over to the actual VM host. Don't run it across an NFS share. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be able to, one gigabyte should be more than, one gigabit per second should be more than sufficient for uh for for a, for an NFS share with disk images, but let's start there. Let's move the disk images back over to the host and run it off of there and see if you still experience the same problem. If you do, then I would start looking into the actual client. So as far as things that you can tweak, there's not a ton of stuff that needs to be tweaked, but what in inside of your RDP client, one of the things, well, there's a couple different things. There's the there's the display bit depth uh, and, and how many colors are rendered on the client machine. Obviously, the less colors you have, the crappier it's going to look, but the more responsive it's going to be. The more colors you do to include all the way up to whatever it is, true color, uh, which gives you basically a like a a perfect representation of if you were actually sitting at the uh, at the at the Windows PC. If you're going to do something like that, you're obviously going to notice a little bit of a performance hit. Nothing like you're describing, though. Let me be clear about that. Uh, the other thing I might look at is, um, I'm just going back through your email. There's, I mean, really, everything you've got here is is great. You have enough RAM allocate. I, I might bump that up. Maybe upgrade. You said the guest VM, yeah, eight gigs. That's more than enough. More than enough. I run Windows 10 VMs on two gigs, and we have them running in production, and they're fine. Now that I don't recommend that, but uh, if the Windows when it runs inside a virtual environment tends to be a lot more lean than when it's running inside of a a, a, a bare metal. And uh, I found that to be true by about half. So if we need four gigs to run a given process on a physical hardware, you can get away with about two uh, in a VM. But that's, that's where I would start. My gut tells me it's something to do with that NFS share. 
um, because you know the RDP client and Windows RDP for all the bad things I have to say about Windows RDP is actually pretty amazing and can tolerate just about anything. So my guess is that's not where your problem is. Your problem stems before that. One thing you could do to figure out if it is in fact a V. Uh, I know how you can tell if it's a if it's an if it's a network share problem or not. Open the actual console and see if the web browser opens up immediately when you run that in. Um, right in the little VNC console. You open up Vert Manager, for example. Don't use the Windows RDP client. Use, you know, connect directly into the box and see if you notice the same staggering. If you do, it's certainly a problem with the actual VM host. And if that doesn't work, write in or call in because I would really like to, to get to the bottom of this. It's an interesting issue. I'd love to troubleshoot it, actually. Another uh, emailer writes in to live at com says, listening to the recent episode, I remember what you said about Dropbox using a single encryption key. So to refresh, last week we talked about Dropbox, and one of the things that Dropbox is kind of known for, for better or for worse, is that they have a single encryption key that they use to encrypt everybody's data. So every Dropbox employee, theoretically, can get access to your data. Again, one more reason not to use the cloud. That wasn't clear from the first 30 minutes of this episode. Uh, so listener writes in and says, there is a nice open source companion app called Cryptomator to encrypt a vault using another Linux OS. And so this is a really, uh, this is a really cool uh, or, uh, uh, software suite that allows you to essentially encrypt your data before syncing it uh, over to Dropbox. So it's all being done client-side. So yeah, they're going to encrypt it with a single private key that they have access to, but guess what? The only data they're able to encrypt is data that you've already encrypted um, with this Cryptomator app. And I am, I don't know how... Oh, I see. I have to stay on this thing. I've been trying to get over to their site. But yeah, this is uh, this is really cool. And it's a perfect example of how the open source community steps in and fixes a problem when a large company that we all are forced to use doesn't fix the problem. The first example of that, obviously, would be something like the Google Drive client, right? They created, the community created a way to access Google Drive. And um, now we have a problem with Dropbox and the community steps up once again. So Cryptomator, free client-side encryption for your cloud files, open source software, no backdoors, no registration. It's available for Mac, Windows, and Linux. You can also add an app for your mobile device. And uh, this is very, very, very cool. And when I first heard of Cryptomator, just, and I'll be honest, I just kind of based this off of the name, I thought this is some hacked together side squibbly project. But when you go to their site, like this is a very well fleshed out product. Uh, drag and drop support, um, they deal with all of the encryption on the fly. Uh, you can create vaults that you can then sync into Dropbox. So it's designed to be a, a companion to, uh, to Dropbox. Uh, secure and trustworthy. They give you all of the crypto specifications of how they're going about the process of encrypting this stuff and how they're keeping your data safe. And of course it's open source. So if you ever question it, you're welcome to, uh, to call them out on it or review the source code or audit them. And they, you know, they would welcome that because it's an open source product. So very cool. Cryptomator, the website, cryptomator.org. Of course, we'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com and uh, click on the latest episode. You'll be able to check that out and read all of the articles and, uh, and references that we mentioned in the show, by the way, speaking of which we did not, we don't get to everything that we, uh, that I plan for the show. Like the show doc right now has two or three articles that we just, we ran out of time. We just don't have the time to get to them. And so uh, if you want to find out what's going on in the week, you're only getting about half the show. If you're just listening to the podcast, so we invite you to head over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. Check out that community dashboard and, um, 
see what you're missing. Also, LinuxDelta.com, we continue to make improvements and additions. You have reached out to us and said, hey, we wanted these distros, and so we have gone about the process of adding those, but we are struggling for funding. Again, like I said, the project is going to continue one way or the other. If I can't get, if we can't find another way to fund the project, then what I'll do is tuck it under UltaSpeed, and it'll just become one more nightmare for my accountants, and they'll just have to deal with that and learn how to give back to the Linux community. I don't have a problem with that at all, but... If you have a, a desire to uh, to contribute either code-wise or monetarily so that we can pay the developers that work on it, we sure would appreciate it. I don't even really know what funding model we should use, if it should be like a Patreon thing, if it should be like a subscription thing, or what it should be. But if you have input, I'd love to hear that. Send those emails to live at asknoahshow.com. Hey, we're out of time, but the next Ask Noah Show is just one week away. We invite you to join us throughout the week over at asknoahshow.com and check out youtube.com slash mindripmedia or Linux-focused video content. See you next week!